So welcome to Professor Latinx's videocast interview for a segment on, that will be used to teach world comics. And today I have the pleasure of having Lindsay Sturick, who is current PhD dissertation writing, working on her basically her book project that's going to explore, that is exploring manga and its influences on alphabetic literature. And she's also teaching at the University of Cincinnati, but like most of us today is um, now teaching online. So welcome, Lindsay. Thank you. So Lindsay, you are going to take us on a little bit of a journey here. Manga, this is your kind of area, your baby. Yes. Um, <laughs> Right, so let's let me start by asking the question of what is manga? Yeah, so it's written out a bit here, but in Japan, manga just means comics. So anything that is uh, written word plus drawn visual images is going to be considered manga. But manga has become an international presence as well. And so on the international stage, it tends to be interpreted as Japanese comics. Uh, but, you know, what Japanese means can be open to interpretation as well. That's so interesting because, you know, when people hear manga, they think something, you know, exotic or not anything to do with comic. But it's actually just mean comics, right? Yeah, that's all it means. It literally means comics. So cool. All right. Well, so then this leads to my next question, um, which of course is um oh my next question is does manga have a unique style or aesthetic so it's a great question because a lot of people would say yes um but really manga doesn't have one form the reason a lot of people would say yes there's one specific manga aesthetic is because mainstream manga does have a generalized aesthetic um, and that was popularized by the How to Draw Manga series. Everyone was using that book to learn how to draw manga, and therefore that became the style of manga. However, there's lots of alternative manga, and since manga just means comics, uh, everything therein falls under manga. So there's a lot of different styles. There is kind of a shared um, iconography that a lot of them have, and that has kind of come over into American comics and just mainstream culture in general. There's no one unique style for manga. What were what would be some of those kind of um, maybe the maybe the very very basic grammar um, if you want to call it that? Sure. So it varies somewhat among target audiences, but by and large, you'll see them a lot as a sweat droplet on the forehead indicates um, anxiety or. Um, uh, what is this, a vein poking out on your forehead is drawn, it's kind of like a modified X symbol. That's when you're really angry and you're frustrated, then that comes out. Um, or a little bubble coming out of the mouth and your eyes closed is sleeping. Those kinds of iconographic things are used pretty much among all manga. Um, but as far as the narrative structure, it can vary a lot more. And of course, um, for readers in the West, say in the US, Europe, etc., um, it can get a little take take some getting used to to read from left 
uh, from right to left, correct? Yes. And once upon a time, I might end up talking about this again, but once upon a time, there was a movement because they thought that, uh, by they I mean publishers, thought that non-Japanese readers would be put off by reading manga uh, in the original way, which is right to left, they switched everything over to left to right, which meant flipping images. Um, it was very difficult and, and time consuming for them. So they started doing the authentic manga movement, which really just means that they stopped flipping all the pages. So now you just have to read it from right to left, like the original. And then they also stopped translating sounds a lot of the time because you can't really translate those um, sound graphics that they include. Right, the onomatopoeia, right? It's a very hard word to say. I was trying to avoid it, but yes. <laughs> So how has manga traveled beyond Japan? So manga has become an international um, market. And France, actually, this is an example of a French translated manga. France is actually one of the biggest markets um, traditionally because it started becoming popular in France first. They had less issues, I think, with their publishers being willing to pick it up. But now, the United States, uh, Germany, Hong Kong, Singapore, of course, China and Korea are huge markets as well. There's various reasons for why they came into play at, at different times, but they have a very, very big foreign fan base. Um, and it's actually contributed also to the creation of original English language comics that are manga um, associated with manga. They use a lot of manga techniques. And I'm sure that other languages as well have a lot of uh, manga that are original to that language. Yeah, I know, uh, for instance, in France, um, well, in art schools here in the U.S., people are still kind of gaga over, like you were saying, that kind of almost stereotypical kind of manga style. Um, but in France, too, it's still, it is huge. It's still huge. Yeah, it is. It's, I had a lot of uh, people in college with me in Japan from France who that's like, you know, the classic question, why are you interested in Japan? What got you interested in Japan? It was always manga. That's just anecdotal, but still. Yeah, no, that's great. How has it influenced other comics traditions? You started to kind of get into that a little bit. Um, yeah. Are there any particular, um, I don't know, comics that come to mind as well when you think about this question? Yeah, so I'll talk later about another one, but first, um, Jean Luen Yang's Boxers and Saints. Not only that one, of course, um, he just generally has taken a lot of influence from manga, but in Boxers and Saints, particularly in boxers, you can really see the influence of shonen manga tropes. Um, a lot of the iconography of you know action lines, really strong action lines, and then zooming in close to the face during a period of um, dramatic scenery to show you how you're supposed to be feeling those things he really utilizes um, to the extent that you can do almost a page by page comparison of some of those action scenes with comparable shonen manga like Naruto, a uh, very popular one. They are very similar looking um, in terms of the action scenes. Of course, he does a lot with color that you don't see in manga, but. Yeah, Brian Scott O'Malley comes to mind too, right? Yeah, yeah. Scott um, Pilgrim is a big one. and. Uh, Brian Scott O'Malley specifically states that he was wanting to create something similar to manga 
or like a hybrid version. Can you share some highlights in manga's history and development? Yeah, so it's interesting because Japan has had quite a long tradition of prose and or poetry paired with images. Um, it's not a new thing by any means. And Gokan was perhaps the earliest progenitor to manga, although, you know, different in its own ways. But manga, as we know it today, really didn't start until Japan was open to the West um, at the end of the Meiji period, so in 1853. And then a bunch of Western, just people in general, Western people came in and started living in Japan and creating comics based on their traditions, mainly British and French traditions of cartooning. I think the next is, yeah, that's an example of a Gokan. You can see it's not quite manga, um, you know, no word balloons, and the images don't follow a narrative, but it's prose and image for sure. Yeah, words and drawings that. Yeah. That yeah. Excuse me. Hold on one second. Dogs out. Compliments one another and also, um, yeah, that um, in, energize the story. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It actually also is um, very popular to get your fashion trends from those. They oh, influence, right. you know, yeah. everyday culture. Now, who was reading these um, these these uh, sort of illustrated, word-drawn narratives? These were read primarily by, I would say, middle-class people. The truly lower class were too poor to be able to buy anything like this. But these were the first time of mass production of this kind of text. So it wasn't only for the aristocracy anymore. And all of this writing is in simple Japanese, not using Chinese characters, just using Japanese native characters. So it was uh, primarily middle-class people, a much larger audience than it had been before. Mm. And that probably, um, the, printing, the printing presses then, there must have been a, a, a real radical sort of revolution happening there. Yeah, I mean, these were still not the easiest thing on earth to make because these are still woodblock prints. Can you imagine cutting those little letters out <laughs> of a block of wood? It sounds horrifying. Um, you know, once you have them, you have them, but until that point, just, ugh. And typable, movable print is very difficult in Japanese. That took quite a while to develop. So how did the new printing technologies shape manga? I guess we started getting into that a little bit already. Yeah, we did. So there's unique challenges to Japanese and Chinese and Korean experience the same difficulties in that uh, there's not necessarily one set of alphabets. So that was always going to be a challenge. But for manga in particular, the shift from brush to pen and from woodblock to pen really made um, their styles change into one that they could have backgrounds now, for example, um, that were much more intricate and detailed. Uh, the line was much more steady. So you get these very even lines versus varying width lines like you would with a brush or with a woodblock print, you would get, you can only have this line all the time. So that was a big change for them. And I think it created a lot of or it created a lot of creativity. It enabled a lot of creativity. Mm, yeah, liberated, right? Liberated. Yes. Yeah, that's right. In the in these early stages of manga's evolution, was there already a crystallizing of a basic manga word-drawn language? Simple answer is no. Um, manga really hadn't 
been able to make its name for itself by the time that they were censored uh, due to World War II. So they were, manga was starting to come into its own, but right when you would be able to say, hmm, maybe they're going to start um, really being read widely and maybe establishing a mainstream, that is exactly the point at which World War II started and they were very, very strongly censored. And so what did, what, did it drive it in underground for a spell? Um, yeah. You would wish, um, really it drove cartoonists into prison who didn't mm -hmm. cooperate with censorship, but the majority of those um, author artists were conscripted into military cartooning um, and propaganda cartooning for the government is what ended up happening for them. Did manga of World War II represent the allies in denigrative and negative ways? Of course. Um, I would argue that the American cartooning of Japan was definitely more racist. And you can see the bottom right image uh, this is the least terrible one that I could find. Um, and that's one of the, the Allies' propaganda images of the Japanese. But Japanese images tended to focus less on physical stereotyping, which was very common in American comics at that time, and more on how great the Japanese are and how everyone um, kind of should join with them because they're so self-sacrificing and supporting the greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere. So you can see shaking hands, you know, oh yeah, good thing the Japanese are here to protect us and our interests. Uh, that kind of thing was much more popular. Or they had some cartoonists um, produce propaganda pieces to try and sow dissension in the Allied troops, which I don't think was particularly effective, um, but they did try to do that, or family-oriented propaganda, you know, for um, the Japanese. This is what your family should look like. Let's all band together and be tough against the allies kind of thing. Yeah, amazing. Uh, the power actually of, well, you know, different nations recognizing the power, the influence of comics, right? Yeah, definitely. What happened to manga after World War II? The biggest thing that happened to manga after World War II, and I'm sure you've heard this name, is Tezuka. Mm -hmm. um, Tezuka started drawing, and he was very, very influenced by Disney. Um, so his drawing style is somewhat Disney-esque. You can see Astro Boy in the background of this one. Uh, that's one of his earliest ones, and is Astro Boy. And not only the drawing style, but also the... Um, also the fast paced narrative, the dynamic storytelling that you would see from Disney, that is what you would see. And then also we had Gekiga um, develop as kind of a opposition to Tezuka. So you have Tezuka and then you have people who don't like Tezuka, so they create their own style, which is very realistic. Um, and then eventually you get this proliferation of genres. You get shoujo manga and you'll start getting joho manga, which is information manga, um, appealing to all different audiences. So just really a burst of creativity. Interesting that in the US during that time we had the comics code established, right? And it really 
that was our time of big censorship, right? Yeah, I mean, so Japan had had censorship, of course, under um, the government during World War II, and then again, censorship right immediately after World War II during the occupation. But after the occupation, it was still better than during the war because the Allies didn't care about as much stuff as the Japanese government did. But after that, you wouldn't see censorship again, even self-censorship really until the 90s. So yeah, how did the social unrest of the 60s change manga? So the 60s was maybe bigger in America than it was in Japan, but of course it was uh, you know, a big time of change. The economy was changing very, very rapidly as well. So in manga, the manga market consolidated a lot. Um, as you know, if you've been to Japan, Tokyo is enormous. And part of the reason it's so enormous is because everyone started moving all of their stuff there, including manga. Uh, so if you're going to go somewhere, you're going to go to Tokyo. This also led to Tokyo recruiting different styles of manga artists to come uh, to their companies to kind of create variation. Um, and then at the same time, because they were no longer so censored and you could not only treat more taboo topics, but just in general topics that you weren't able to deal with before, uh, you started to see this proliferation of genres, shoujo genre, which is girls, girls manga, generally targeting young girls, um, often dealing with female same-sex intimacy, seinen, get into erotic things often in um, seinen, which is kind of older than adolescent uh, male-oriented genre. Shonen is what you see all the time, right? Naruto, Bleach, these popular action-packed um, genre. A lot of stuff happening uh, in the 60s there. <laughs> Gender and genre are very tightly tied together in manga in ways that, um, well, maybe, I guess, maybe we could see superhero comics being kind of you know, tied more to boys. Um, although of course that's, that's changed a lot, but yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's very interesting. And it's always quite shocking to my American students when I explain this kind of genre. I don't know if genre is the best way to describe it. Really it's target audience categories. Um, so you have shonen. This is quote unquote boys manga. You have shoujo girls manga, seinen men's, if you will, manga, and then Jose's women's manga. This is just target audiences. Um, so for shonen, it, it's an interesting back and forth. You're targeting this audience, but you're also taking cues from your supposed target audience as to what they want. And so that's what you'll create, and then it'll fall into your genre. So it's kind of a circle. Um, mm -hmm. But especially in shonen, this is the most prolific genre. And of course, it reaches beyond boys. Everybody reads shonen manga. Um, and it also has the widest range of actual genres like action or um, even noir, uh, gag manga, which ended up kind of trickling through um, from alternative manga and then kind of a bunch of erotic things came out of that as well. Yeah, so in boys manga, there's just an absolute proliferation of creativity, especially in the 60s. 
Um, a lot of science fiction gets really popular as well because people are very concerned about technology and that shows up in the manga. You mentioned, you already talked a little bit about the shoujo. Um, was there anything you wanted to kind of, or actually maybe something that's kind of interesting to me is that th within the shoujo, there are these sort of subgroups um, where we do have kind of boy, boy love. Yeah. Yeah, so the interesting thing about shoujo is that because it's all about generally emotions um, and relationships, it explores very taboo relationships, more so than shonen, which is, is just concerned about action and, and getting that um, you know high from your hero winning all the time. But for girls manga, it's all about exploring emotions. So you get some really taboo topics like um, an unwed girl's unplanned pregnancy and then her abortion. This is, of course, a very taboo topic, but it's addressed in shoujo and it's able to be addressed because uh, these are all about emotions. And then like November Gymnasium, this is what you can see in the background of this one. Um, this is about a homosexual male relationship. I would say a male-male intimate relationship. It's hard to really call it a homosexual relationship. But I'll talk, of course, about that a little bit more um, later on when we talk about Aoi, uh, Yaoi. But they also explore some female intimacy, um, which I'll also talk about later. But they can really get into those relationships because they're so focused on emotion. That ends up being like a main plot for them is their relationships. Well, mangaka, we hear that term. What is that actually? Uh, mangaka is a manga creator. Again, simple. <laughs> <laughs> and what is this 24 group, year 24 group? Yeah, so the year 24 group was huge, is huge. They're still around. Um, they, it's a bunch of female artists that are loosely grouped because they're all born either on or around the year 1949, which in Japanese is Showa, Emperor's Year, Showa 24. So year 24 group. Mm -hmm. Um, and they created, they basically created shoujo manga. That is somewhat my opinion, but I think it's pretty well evidenced. But so they created new themes. Um, they went from this, a lot of shoujo manga before this was really focused on this cloistered female um, relationships, you know, sisterhood, and that's it. And they really revolutionized that and brought in a whole new idea of what it is to be a girl in this new time period. Um, also new drawing styles. They took on the Tezukian style, right, kind of cute. But then they also developed their own style. They enlarged the eyes even more. Everybody in, in shoujo manga says that emotion comes in through the eyes. The bigger the eyes, the better, uh, which is kind of a funny thing to hear, but it does tend to be true for them. And then they started using a little bit more angular style um, on a lot of the faces to make them stand out from like backgrounds, which tend to be soft. Um, and then they also did new panel arrangements. So instead of this cinematic style, this Disney style that Tezuka liked so much, they moved to a grid that's not temporal. So because it's all about emotion, it doesn't necessarily matter the sequencing of it in the narrative when you're having um, this emotion occur to you and oftentimes they'll superimpose um, an image of some, basically just somebody thinking or crying to kind of highlight the emotions 
So the, the, the paneling is then arranged around emotional principles instead of just time principles. Wow, I've learned so much just now, thank you. Um, and yeah, gen the gender bending, you started to get into that. Yeah, it's, you see it a lot more in Japanese comics in general. I'm not limiting this to shoujo manga, although that is where you see most of it. Um, but gender bending is less of a big deal in Japan in general when you are younger. Um, it's generally seen as okay to kind of dress like a boy or dress like a girl, if you will. But this is really underlined in shoujo manga. Um, for example, Rose of Versailles, this kind of male looking character on the left, I would say androgynous, but dressed as a male, that is not a male, that's a female. Um, and it, they create a lot of these kinds of manga where you can sometimes mistake the character's gender um, or they do it on purpose. So the idea though behind it is that women, even at that time, right, in the 70s, generally were expected to be at home, um, not out adventuring like the boys, right? Not out doing these fun things that they're reading about. So when you're able to cross your gender into, or at least cross dress into a male role, then you're able to get outside of these expectations of femininity and you can explore too. So that's what ended up happening. That's kind of the start of the creation of this gender bending, but also of boys love, um, which I have here is shonen. I, I would explain it more, but it gets complicated. There's at least four different ways you can call this um, male-male intimacy related manga. But yeah, so, you know, you can look at a male-male relationship in your manga and kind of experience that vicariously but it's not so close, right? It's not a female-female relationship that you feel like you're transgressing anything because you're watching from the outside because you can't be inside of that because you're not a male. Yeah, it's this kind of interesting yeah. dynamic. Yeah, awesome, I love it. Um, yeah, so- There we go. Yao, yaoi, how would you say that? Yaoi. Don't worry, it's not a real word, it's a made up word. Uh, <laughs> yaoi. So this word is made up. I won't bother with the Japanese because I also forget it a lot of the times. But it means no climax, no point, no meaning. And then they took all those letters and put them together. Um, <laughs> so there's so many different words that you can use for quote unquote homosexual manga. Um, but this one specifically connotes non-commercial works, so self-published works that mm -hmm. depict homosexual or quasi-homosexual relationships. It's not always the case. It's often used outside of Japan as a catch-all for any boys' love work. But in Japan, yaoi is used for non-commercial works, and then BL, or boys' love, is used as the catch-all term for commercially and non-commercially published works. Boys Adabu, yeah, boys love. And bara manga? Yeah, so bara is actually targeting an audience of homosexual men, which is different than boys love. Boys love targets young women and girls as their audience, and they're often written by female authors, whereas bara is by gay male authors for gay male readership.
And the protagonists are, you can see from this versus the previous one, um, the protagonists are very different. Bara often features really muscular, hairy men, and BL features beautiful boys who are kind of wispy and long legs and skinny. And can you find um, Bara manga also alongside, you know, the yaoi? No, no, no. Generally, no. They're kept, so for example, if you're going to go into a bookstore in Japan, you would find yaoi or BL just, BL often has its own section of the store. You would not find Bada next to it. Um, it has its own section over by the men's manga section, like the older men's manga section. Got it. So there are a couple of, um, certainly some of the uh, the Bada manga mangaka, you know, creators that are, have kind of made their way into the sort of space of the United States. Uh, I know that my brother's husband won an Eisner in 2018, for instance. Yeah. Maybe you can talk a little bit about um, some of these creators. Yeah, so I think the majority of these creators were in the gay manga anthology Massive, um, which was translated into English and it was one of the first um, gay manga anthologies translated into English. So they became very popular over here. They're not by any means mainstream in Japan or, or here, but definitely not in Japan. But My Brother's Husband is the, the picture there that's by Gengoro Tagame. And he is a generally considered a bara mangaka, but he tends to deal with BDSM and really dark themes typically. So this was unusual for him. This is kind of a new, uh, breaking new ground for him. Um, it's kind of a slice of life and it deals with um, homophobia and you know, family relationships and things like that. Yamada um, deals with Bara as well, slightly darker than um, Mizuki and Matsu, but he also wrote a slice of life manga called Areo Hoshikuzu, and this kind of blurred the lines between what counts as, you know, gay manga and what is just manga and should we even create a line between these two. Um, and then Mizuki and Matsu are both bara, but they use a lighter style. Mizuki even uses kind of a BL style in his drawing. Um, and they focus a little bit more on character development rather than, you know, straight up erotica. Um, and First Class Daddy is, you know, an example of that is kind of a cute drawing style as well. But all of these artists, all four of them and a couple others also now see a lot of crossover readership. So they're not only appealing to gay readership, they appeal broadly. Um, although generally Mizuki and Matsu, because of their lighter styles perhaps, tend to draw a larger uh, female audience than Yamada and Tagame. Alternative manga, I don't think a lot of our students know or have even heard of this. Yeah, so alternative manga, as far as the United States go, doesn't get published. It just doesn't. There's one or two um, alternative manga publications in English that I've ever been able to get my hands on. But it's, there's reasons for that. And part of it is because a lot of it is very challenging material. Um, when it can't be mainstream, people who write manga have other alternative ways to go. 
And one of those was Gato for a long time. Gato is now, um, it was bought out and then went under. But Gato um, has, it originally featured Gekiga artists, which is that realistic style of art. And then when Gekiga got absorbed by the Tokyo mainstream, they started publishing taboo themes, um, gag manga with a lot of scatological humor, more erotic themes. Um, and it was just a platform for usually men uh, to explore the new challenges of living in the modern age in a way that regular mainstream manga didn't allow them to. Really fascinating. Um, yeah, maybe you can speak a little bit about um, you know, some of the, the figures here, the mangaka of the alternative manga. Sure, yeah. So Yoshiharu Tsuge is a popular-ish, <laughs> popular, take it with a grain of salt, right? But a popular um, alternative mangaka. And he first introduced a very dark and symbolic form of slice of life. Um, and he also created the Watakshi manga, which is like the eye uh, novel version of manga. Mm. Um, and like shoujo manga, he focuses primarily on the thoughts and his own thoughts and feelings, right? Because this is kind of an autobiographical inside of my mind look at manga. Um, but, you know, less flowers, obviously. It's a little bit darker inside of his mind. And then there's a lot of themes of sexual frustration and social isolation and alienation that are dealt with um, in these manga. Mm -hmm. And eventually they started developing alongside a lot of the scatological humor, interestingly, the Hetauma drawing style, which is like, Hetauma means uh, bad good, so bad that it's good. Mm. The background of this slide is an example of Hetauma style. Really and then- Interesting, and then the, um, you mentioned here in your, in your slide, Eroguro, yeah, Eroguro manga. So Eroguro manga was part of a larger movement, even in the art world of Japan, of erotic grotesque. Um, so it gets, this is where the impression of Japan as a kitschy, erotic, um, pervy, I guess, place comes from originally. It was very popular after World War II and into the 70s to kind of do this shock horror slash shock eroticism. Mm -hmm. um, and that is reflected in alternative manga that did not end up coming into mainstream manga for obvious reasons, but. Censorship in Japan, we spoke a little bit about that already. So maybe we can kind of jump right into this, the Japan cool period. <laughs> yeah, so Japan cool, is literally a government funded project, um, or it was for a long time. I think it's finally, they've phased it out because they're cool enough now. But it's trying to increase not just manga, but also fashion and the traditional arts. And in the case of manga, the government tried to facilitate partnerships um, with you know publishers who could publish in different languages. And it really worked as far as manga goes. Um, in one survey of French manga readers, you can see here that 
manga has had a very strong influence on readers view of Japan, which is good because as I said before, really a lot of the things that were coming out of Japan were pornography um, and electronics. So to change that image was kind of the point of all this. And it did really work. I mean, now people's image of Japan tends to be Pikachu and Naruto um, versus, you know, everything else, just Nissan or whatever else. Yeah, it's definitely seemed to work. Um, um, yeah. <laughs> where, uh, so editorial censorship, censorship in general, plus the soft power seemed to me, um, someone kind of on the outside of this, um, and you're gonna, I know, nuance this a bit, but it definitely seemed to work to push manga kind of into other spaces, mm -hmm. um, both creative within the country, but also outside of the country. Yeah, so, so editorial censorship was mainly about appeasing parents. Um, and then they kind of ran with it and it ended up developing new genres. Um, so there was a resurgence of magical girl manga, which are super fun. Everyone's probably at least heard of Sailor Moon. Um, this is, you know, it's a very, it's a shoujo manga. It's a girl's manga. However, it also combines boys manga tropes, right? That action adventure thing that you see with girls manga. So you're reaching a wider audience, but also because there's only so much that you can do, um, especially when you're censoring, they started to just reach into different categories and see how they could combine them to make new things. Um, and then you see also with Monster, which is in the bottom right, is an example of it. Um, this kind of taking um, mainstream genres and tweaking them without introducing anything too um, unusual is kind of what they started doing with a lot of um, new stories. Or they started just revamping entirely old stories, as we see happens in Hollywood nowadays, the same kind of thing. And this gets us back to some of our earlier points about the transmigration, right? Um, you mentioned already Scott Pilgrim, but maybe you can talk about some of the, um, like Ikaro? Ikaro, yeah, Ikaro is very interesting because it's, a collaborative work which granted most manga are collaborative works it's very rare for the person who writes the script to also be the drawer um, if that's how you say that to be the illustrator um, so Ikaro there's version one or part one and part two this is a collaborative work with a foreign artist Mobius and uh, Taniguchi Jiro and then also the thing about manga's production, as I just mentioned, is it's rare to have somebody do the whole thing. So you'll have somebody create the script, and then you'll have somebody who creates usually the characters in space, but that same person is never gonna do all the backgrounds because he would just die from all that work. It would be insane. They send it out. Um, they often send it out to South Korea, particularly after South Korea ended the manga embargo against Japan. Uh, which was very interesting. There were good reasons for it and, and bad, but they ended that. And so now a lot of the people who are creating manga are actually Korean behind the scenes, but then you have these manga artist names that are Japanese, which is interesting. Web comics. 
Yeah. So web comics are super interesting for, I mean, for all of us in comics, I think they're fascinating because you're going from a page turning format to a scroll down format, which in manga is a bit of a challenge because the effect is that you can't get the sudden close-ups that they often will do in action scenes or in shoujo manga when they want to highlight a sudden overcoming of emotion. The next page you turn it and you know her face welling tears or something. You can't do that because you're scrolling slowly up most of the time. Uh, so that's been something that they've had to adapt to, but they have. So One Punch Man is one example of a web comic. Now it's also an anime. It's pretty funny. Um, it's kind of a uh, joke on shonen tropes. Um, but it was first a web comic and then it got published as a manga. So I think that the manga industry as a whole is seeing web comics as a source of new creativity that they've been kind of hoping for this whole time since they started censoring too much. Um, so now they have this huge web-based source uh, to draw from and start creating printable manga from. I suppose a lot of independent uh, mangaka are using the web space, right, for their creating and, and uh, distributing and finding audiences. Yeah, definitely. Although I will say that the Japanese market uh, for self-published comics is huge. Mm. So if you've ever heard of Kamiket, uh, it happens twice a year. It draws crowds from all over the world. It's enormous. So I would say that the web comics scene, I see more Korean and um, Chinese and Taiwanese artists on the web comic scene than I do Japanese artists because Japanese artists just have other modes of publication um, and doujinshi is a profitable market, whereas web comics tends to be free. Wow. Seriously, uh, Lindsay, that was absolutely incredible. And I have to say that I learned a ton and I think <laughs> our uh, viewers and listeners are gonna learn a ton. Thank you, Lindsay, for sharing, unzipping your brain and sharing all this knowledge on manga. Oh, thank you for inviting me, that was fun. Awesome, thank you.